And good morning and welcome to The Skinny here on WMNF for Friday, September 15th. I'm Mitch Perry, senior political reporter for the Florida Phoenix, joined by today as usual with, by, with freelance reporter Ben Montgomery and creative loafing editor-in-chief Ray Roa. Good morning, gents. Good morning, Mitch. Hey, welcome morning, back. Mitch. Welcome back. Yeah, yeah. I was in Tallahassee last week for the oral arguments at the Florida Supreme Court debate, and I was in Orlando last night for the Republican Party of Florida's Statesman Dinner, which uh, had featured a lot of interesting comments by some of our leading Republicans here in the state of Florida, and I hope we can talk about that a little later in the program. But first, let's talk about health care in the state. And of course, uh, every this affects everybody out there. Now, you, if you have health care, you've got a job, it's like, okay, no problem, right? Well, you know, I guess so for now, right? But uh, what happens if you don't have that job, right? Or or something happens? Uh, we know that uh, this is such a precarious situation. It certainly is in Florida. It can be. So joining us to talk about what's going on with health care in Florida uh, is Scott Darius with Florida Voices for Health, a health care advocacy group. Scott, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we're also joined by Allison Holmes, who's been trying for 16 years now to get her now 19-year-old son, who has cerebral palsy, to get on the state's home and community-based Medicaid waiver program for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Allison, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here with us, Allison. And we'll get to your situation in just a moment. But Scott, we'll begin with you. Um, well, first of all, let's, Scott, you're with, of course, Florida Voices for Health. Tell the listeners what, what your organization is all about. Sure. So we're a health advocacy organization, and our mission is really to increase access to health care for low-income and middle-income Floridians. We do that in a couple different ways, but at the heart of our work is connecting with people like Allison who are experiencing these things directly uh, and giving them the opportunity to use their voice and their stories to hopefully impact and create change. So let's begin. I think the biggest story in terms of helping out those in terms of healthcare access is this whole issue with Medicaid unwinding. Uh, that's the process that's been taking place uh, after the renewal process for people on Medicaid, uh, of course, for the last three years during the COVID-19 pandemic, no one had to go through this kind of a renewal process to stay on Medicaid. This has been taking place since, I believe, April, uh, and it's affecting everyone in the country, cer- certainly here in Florida. And according to the latest data compiled by the Kaiser Family Foundation, at least 5.7 million people around the country have lost Medicaid coverage. Uh, and the problem was that some people are losing it, or maybe a lot of people are losing it, not because they no longer qualify for coverage, but because of paperwork reasons. Uh, according to Kaiser Family Foundation, more than 400,000 Floridians have lost coverage since COVID-era protections ended in March, and more than half, or 55%, were unenrolled due to, quote, procedural reasons, not because they were found ineligible. Scott, I got to believe this is something that you guys have been working on. Talk about this. Absolutely. You know, it's disappointing to see such a large number of people who have been unenrolled right and i know fundamentally it's the group of people who no one can argue deserves care are those who are still eligible who sh- yeah if they technically qualify then they should remain on the program and i don't think anyone could have bones about that unfortunately as these and you know the state dcf work really hard to put together a plan uh, on how they would communicate these changes, communicate redetermination to such a a big population. Uh, They used a couple different strategies, including an envelope that had a yellow stripe on it. They sent text messages and all of these things. 
Uh, but unfortunately, right, uh, I think the system did let people down in a couple of different places. A few months ago, Florida Voices held a roundtable just talking to people who had gone through the redetermination process themselves. And what we learned there echoed a lot of what we've seen in other places. One, that the notices that folks were receiving, if they received them in time, they were definitely confusing. So they would be five pages long, but, you know, it would have... It would communicate two or three different things, letting, making the person unable to, you know, actually understand what their situation is, especially if they're in a household that has mixed status, right, where children might remain eligible, but the adult doesn't. Uh, but then for folks who were diligent, because sometimes you hear this talking point that it's not, it's the fault of these folks for not doing the work to follow up, but most of them call the call center or follow up with the numbers that they're given and unfortunately have spent hours on the phone right um, i think what we heard was people sitting on uh hold for two or three hours at a time more often longer than that uh often they'd run into when they finally did get a hold of someone that person didn't fully understand their case and what the options were uh and so yeah the system definitely let a lot of people down and it's those folks who ultimately were disenrolled people who are still eligible but unable to you know didn't get that paperwork in in time or didn't get right. clarity on what their exact situation is yeah what a nightmare so again we're speaking with scott darius with florida voices for health uh, healthcare advocacy group and there was this report uh, for regarding Spanish-speaking uh, households trying to reach Florida Medicaid call centers, they're facing. You mentioned the delays, uh, and it's even worse apparently for those who don't speak English. This is from Unidas U.S., uh, the nation's largest Hispanic civil rights advocacy group, shared with NBC News, showed that the an average Spanish language caller had to wait nearly four times longer than an English language caller to be able to speak to a representative at Florida's Medicaid call center. Uh, about a third, or thirty percent, of all Spanish language calls were disconnected before the caller reached a representative compared to 10% of English language calls. Uh, you know, it, it's, this is, you know, it, it, a lot of people are getting hurt in the situation here. Um, so I'm, I'm sure, that, well, I don't know. I, I don't want to say I'm sure of anything here. So uh, is this getting any better right now? Unfortunately, I don't think it has. We've called on the state, us, and a couple of partners uh, working in coalition on this issue. We've called for a couple of reforms. There are a couple of tools that the federal government has given the state to, you know, work their process, uh, both to leverage uh, some of the other technologies that are out there to be able to access other systems where they can pull information and make redeterminations based on that instead of waiting for consumers to or the enrollees to complete that information. There are just a lot of tools at our disposal that we haven't seen exercised yet. And even just the pods, right? Uh, Florida has never been great, I think, when it comes to the redetermination process, but the task in front of them was to redetermine the status of 4.9 million people. And that's, right, like that's just a huge task for anyone. So it feels like the right move to just take a pause, reassess, and redevelop kind of our approach to this, but we haven't gotten to that stage yet. And I'm so happy you made the point about these groups that are being disproportionately impacted, um, including our Spanish-speaking neighbors. 
Yeah, absolutely. Another thing, of course, I want to talk to you about, Scott, is this situation with Medicaid and the fact that we still don't have Medicaid expansion. It's maybe a quote-unquote old story because it's been going on for 10 years, but it's still as relevant as ever. But before we do that, let's bring in uh, Allison Holmes here. Allison, um, who has been uh, in the news a lot over the last few years advocating for her son, JJ. Uh, Allison, thank you so much again for joining us. What's Before we, um, so you have the situation with your son here who has cerebral palsy, uh, and before we talk talk to you. We've got some sound from the, and this is how I I learned of uh, Allison and JJ. So earlier this week on Tuesday, the Hillsborough County legislative delegation held a meeting at the Tampa airport, actually in the Sky Center, a new facility there. Uh, A lot of counties are having, the county legislative delegations are having these meetings because believe it or not, the first committee meeting in Tallahassee is next week. And those committee meetings will be going in the next few months before the session begins in full in January. So this is sound we have here, uh, taken from the Florida Channel. This is J.J. Holmes. He was addressing the Hillsborough County Legislative Delegation on Tuesday morning about his particular situation. My name is J.J. Holmes. I'm a college freshman and I've been waiting for Medway for disability services for over 16 years. Florida is 49th in the nation for funding the program, but back when Jeb Bush was governor, he fully funded the waiver. He actually cared about what happened to people like me. But nowadays, Florida has forgotten about us. The session y'all gave half a billion dollars to drivers who use the toll road over 35 times a month. That money could have cleared the waiting list for people with disabilities. I've come here today to ask you, why did you decide toll road users needed your help more than someone like me? Okay, that was J.J. Holmes. Uh, Allison Holmes, uh, Allison joining us right now. Uh, Allison, tell us a little more about J.J. and, and how it can even like make, make those, um, you know, how we spoke like that. How does that work the way he was able to communicate so, so solidly like that? Thanks. Yeah, J.J.'s, so he's, he's 19, college freshman. He's um, in a wheelchair. He uses a communication device. It's an app on an iPad, which is mounted to his wheelchair tray and he types with his nose. Um, He can't sit, stand, feed, dress, care for himself. Um, He's, but he's, he's in college. He can, um, it's amazing what his nose, what he can do using his nose. Um, So, uh, and there's the waiver, which is supposed to be there to help him stay living in the community and not end up in a state-run institution um, and the waivers for people with fairly significant disabilities you know if you do if, you, if somebody say has a bone spur they're not going to get it. it it really is um where where you've got to go through a, a an assessment um but the um only way just now that he will get the uh waiver is if he's in crisis and for him it's Either if um, his caregiver dies, and and it's it's that it has to be that um, serious, or right. if he's homeless, and it's it, it, until that point we can get no services in place. And my fear is that if I die tomorrow, there is no way that they can get 
all that he would need set up. I mean, if we got the waiver tomorrow, we would couldn't get carers set up in in one day, so they wouldn't. And then he will go into an institution and and never come out. And he's has so much to give. He wants to advocate for people with disabilities, but um, if this if this continues, we haven't we have no idea we, of whether he will get the waiver, and if he does, when there's just no no endpoints. There's not um, in three years you'll get the waiver. So we could at least focus on something. It's just in limbo. Right. And Do we have a sense, Allison, of how many Floridians are situated similar to your son? There's over twenty two thousand, and there's only about 35,000 um, people who get the waiver. So the, the wait list is going up and up and up. And if it continues in this way, it'll soon be more people on the wait list than there are getting the waiver. We're 49th for funding um, in the country. And people people move here from New York. They move here from California. And, and people have moved back because they don't realize that this is the situation in Florida. Yeah, again, we're speaking with Allison Holmes, speaking about her son, JJ, uh, who is a 19-year-old college student. He has cerebral palsy, and he uh, he is, again, as, you, as Allison just said, on this waiting list for waiver services here in Florida. Um, uh, Allison, I, obviously, this is not new for you, what you did the other day going before this particular uh, legislative group here in Hillsborough County. You actually don't live in Hillsborough, right? You live in uh, central Florida, correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh how long have you been going in front of lawmakers uh, discussing this situation? Mm, quite, quite a few years. We've we've met our our senator is uh, Jason Brodeur, and he's on um, a number of health committees. But um, this, the, the, they, I believe that JJ should get services somewhere else. Not very clear where it should be but this isn't the case um so the everybody's very sympathetic and i mean um people from randy fine to anna eskamani kind of <laughs> one extreme to the other and that they have said to us that they believe the waiver should get more funding so this isn't this isn't something that we get a lot of pushback that it shouldn't be funded and yet as we say, that toll roads, um, people who who use that get get relief, and we twenty two thousand, I think four hundred people sit languishing on the wait list. You know, I, I thought it was incredible that what JJ said the other day, because, and I put this in my story when I wrote about this with the Florida Phoenix, um, because that was that toll road, uh, you know, a little pr- pr- discount for folks. Um, it's nice, obviously, but it did cost $500 million. I mean, obviously that money could be utilized for other places. And that's always an issue with government, your priorities. Scott, let's bring you back into this. Um, uh, Allison says we're 49th in the nation, this type of funding. Uh, I, I know this is something that I'm sure your organization is working on. I mean, uh, do you see any t- time at all where the legislature might put more funding into this program? You know, it's a it's a question of political will, right? Um, if a budget is an expression of your priorities, because the money's definitely there. You think about how we made it through the pandemic and the sales tax revenue that the state generated. 
uh, all the money that we have sitting in reserves, billions of dollars. So it's not to say that the money isn't there. It's just, is there a will to use it for this purpose? Uh, it's our job to make enough noise to hopefully push them there. Uh, but unfortunately, like Allison says, we haven't seen that movement yet. And at this point, again, if you're just tuning in right now, you're listening to Skinny here on WMNF, where he's talking about health care here in Florida. Uh, we're speaking with Scott Darius, who is with the organization of Florida Voices for Health, a health care advocacy group, and Allison Holmes, who's been trying for years to get her son uh, into the state's Medicaid waiver program for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Scott, let's go back and talk about Medicaid, Medicaid expansion. I believe now there's only 10 states in the country that do not do this, do not have not expanded Medicaid ever since the Affordable Care Act went into a law a decade or so ago, I guess it was. Um, and uh, I know lawmakers, I think Fentress Driscoll from this area actually uh, sponsored a bill last year on this. I mean, you know, Democrats in the in the legislature are still doing that. I know there was an attempt a few years ago to try to get this as a constitutional amendment because obviously, as in other issues, when you can't get it through lawmakers in Tallahassee, this has been a method for folks to do it. Of course, it takes a lot of money and it has not, it has not happened. Um, again, more, more red states the last couple of years have done this now. So, um, but I, I know I've talked to a lot of these lawmakers over the years. They're not going to change not this GOP controlled legislature. Uh, so just your thoughts about that. Yeah, you know, if you'll allow me just to take a step back, because anytime you have the conversation about Medicaid, I think everyone just kind of fills in with what they think they know about the program. But it's worth saying how it's worth pointing out just how difficult it is to qualify for Medicaid here in the state. Sometimes there's just like the mindset that, oh, if you're poor, you probably qualify for Medicaid. More than almost more restrictive than any other state in the country, the most you can make to qualify for Medicaid here in the state in a family of three, for example, the most you can make over a year is $7,000 for the year. You make a penny over that and you don't qualify for Medicaid at all in this state. So I know there's right like the talking point we hear a lot is like, oh, it's able bodied people who aren't working. When in fact, it's quite the opposite. It's people who are working, but find themselves making $15,000, $20,000 for the year and are unable to get access to care either through the ACA or Medicaid. Uh, you know, we there's maybe half a million people who we're talking about, but that number, again, reflects pre-pandemic and before this redetermination process. So once we're on the other side of that, we'll see where that number lands. But yeah, it's one of those things where our legislators, we've had, you know, the Democratic support for sure. But even dating back to when it was first an opportunity, we had Republican senators who yeah. were leading the charge and trying to make it happen. So I think I, I see a little hope nowadays, now that we've had kind of this turnover in the legislature and you have folks who aren't so dug in uh, anti-ACA and really are looking to do the best things they can for their communities and really just need to be educated on the issue. Uh, will leadership let them take that next step is the open question, but I think there are a lot of people who actually want to do what's right for the people that they're serving. And I think, Allison, I think I've read that, that you're, you're hoping to see this happen. I mean, do you, do you, do you have health care yourself personally? 
So because I am JJ's full-time caregiver, I fall into the uh, coverage gap. And so this, yeah, this fallacy that it's um, able-bodied people with, with no dependence is, is, not, um, is not correct. And of course, not having um, support with a, with a caregiver. I mean, I, I would go out and get, get a job tomorrow if, if um, we could get the waiver. But um, so, so I could get health care. So, yep, it's you're caught in, in all ways. You know, uh, Kathleen Pasadomo is the Senate president, and uh, she is very powerful, along with the Speaker of the House. She was quoted recently in the, uh, on the website City and State saying, quote, I don't believe we need to expand Medicaid. I didn't support it when I was in the House. She says, whether you have insurance or you don't, if you don't have any doctors to treat you in the middle of the state, that's what we need to focus on. The whole Medicaid thing is just a distraction to what we should be looking at. We've got to look at birth to death. I kind of have in my mind a sort of plan, a comprehensive plan where you start with prevention. We've got to start doing more with prevention, health fairs and the like. We have to detect pathology sooner rather than in the ER, which, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Everybody, you know, when it comes to health care, I believe, you know, personal responsibility, as it says. But um, that's not really encouraging there. Uh, I would say we've got uh, David writes in um, talking about this, uh, saying it's it's shameful. The Florida won't expand Medicaid. And he says it's all about politics. Uh, let's see here. Um, and he mentions, uh, you know, he said it was very powerful to hear from JJ. He has a, uh, a nephew, uh, who also has cerebral palsy, lives at home, just graduated from USF. Uh, all right. Thank you for that, David. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's certainly a situation where we have here that is, um, not very promising in the terms of. And if you'd like to call in, the phone number is 813-239-9663. You can send an email to dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. This needs a champion, it seems to me. Uh, Has anybody uh, sort of stepped up to, I mean, we've rattled off the names of a couple of legislators who seem sympathetic, but has anybody become a champion for this? You know, we've had over the years, uh, Representative Escamani, who's been a really strong voice for this, Representative Nixon, who's also, uh, you know, stepped in there. Uh, Senator Geraldine Thompson has filed the bill the last few years. But in terms of, you know, it's a lot of it has to deal with like the dynamics of the legislature. Why take up this one thing or why die on that hill when there are other priorities and things that can be moved if you're willing to kind of put that to the side. But I think ultimately that's what we're looking for is someone who's willing to stand there, think, you know, and yeah, really hang in there and do what needs doing to make sure that we even just to have the conversation about MedEx. It's been since 2014, I think was the last time the legislature even had the discussion. And that feels like a a failure. Well, and I'm sorry. No. Allison, uh, I was going to ask, uh, uh, you know, there's this new wave of uh, young people getting involved in politics. I wonder if JJ has any ambition in regards to politics. <laughs> he he does. He, um, he, he, he has a lot of ambition um, to make himself, he, want, he, he wants to make sure that his voice, computerized, though it is, is heard and he uh, he sees the inequity in in Florida in, in particular and wants to to try and uh, affect change um, and I'm I'm so proud of, of him not only advocating for himself but wanting to uh, his his um, he always includes that he's advocating for the other 
22,400 or whatever who are on the, the wait list like, like him. Some people longer than him. I mean, this this is not... 16 and a half years is is by no means a... a, 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 a unusual this um there's people over over 20 years and this is just this is no way to treat such a vulnerable population i'm sure you've i'm sure you've bumped into a number of those people allison in your advocacy can you share some of the details without revealing identities or or betraying too much no i mean um there's people this um Somebody who she just wants for her her son. She um, he's been on it for over twenty years. She just wants a couple of days a week for him to go to us um, somewhere for adults to uh, perhaps do art or something like this instead mm. of their world shrink as they get older and um, they. they tend to end up in in the house more and more and more. Mm. Um, Another friend of mine, she uh, had her hip replaced, she, almost 80. Her son was on the wait list and he he ended up in hospital because of problems, was sent home. Uh, and she said, I, I can't care for him um, properly. And he, he fell again and died seven days later. And this is the fear that I see that I don't want to be... Just, standing in front of legislators telling them that that happened to JJ. And it, it shouldn't be that we get to this point to be homeless. Somebody like JJ living homeless mm. is when he would get the, the waiver. This is th this catastrophic crisis that they want you to be in before giving any help is, is, is senseless. You know, we just got a note from a listener who says, JJ for president. He's awesome. Uh, and, you know, the reader, the listener also says, I'm tired of these uh, grifters in Tallahassee. They need to be voted out. Well, you know, whether they do or not, the, the point is, you know, it's something I bring this show a lot is talk about the state issues because I do feel that uh, unless people are affected by it, it's kind of like, you know, the issues with like prisoners, frankly, where unless you're directly affected by it, sometimes people just don't care. Uh, I think people fall you know, to the extent they follow government, they follow national news, they may follow their local, you know, community, which they should. But um, so much of the time when things happen in Tallahassee, which are so powerful, I think we've really seen this in the last couple of years, but the spotlight on what Governor DeSantis has been doing up there, um, that, you know, you only get that one time to vote every two years to vote on these lawmakers and issues like this. Are, are really critical. And Scott, you've expressed a little bit of hope in the context of the body of lawmakers that will make decisions here um, in this next session. But to piggyback off of something you said, Allison, you mentioned those 16 and a half years. There's a lot of people who haven't done anything for 16 and a half years, be married, anything um, like that. Can you talk about whether or not you have hope. I mean, you talk about Eskamani and Representative Fine, um, but you've been fighting this battle for a really long time. How does it feel different uh, in, in this break here? Does anything feel different? I, I don't know. I, I, we, we expect the worst, but hope for the best. We just feel if the 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 saying that you have in um, over here, the squeaky wheel, and that's 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 all we've got. There's nothing else. We we can't just sit and do nothing. But um, I mean, when when we met with Jason Brodeur and and came into the conversation about me being in the coverage gap and his suggestion was a virtual doctor that you could pay a hundred dollars a month for which is and it's it's trying to um 
have them understand what your day actually looks like that we don't i i can't i i my back is getting worse and worse and worse and eventually i just won't be able to lift jj mm-hmm. and then again this is going to cost hundreds of thousands in a state-run facility but the the dots don't seem to be connected i i just i i don't know if we need to show them how much it would cost if you went into a state-run facility or just keep going in front of them. I, d- I don't know what it will take for them to understand when when they their their life is so different and they don't they they have their health care that so it's it's not something they've had to deal with and a a virtual sort of telehealth appointment sounds great to them where in reality it's not. All right, we're going to leave if it I, there. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, we're going to. Yeah, oh, Scott, Scott, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just to say on the question of hope, right? Uh, my hope doesn't really come from these legislators. It actually comes from meeting people like Allison. And over the last few years, we've just met more and more of them. Like there are more, there's so much momentum on the ground of people who are finally just have had enough and are now getting involved. And so, yeah, just being able to be a vehicle for that to give their voice a platform is ultimately what gives me hope at the end of the day. All right. We've been speaking with Scott Darius. He's with Florida Voices for Health, a healthcare advocacy group, and also Allison Holmes, who is the mother of JJ, who, of course, uh, as we've been hearing here, has cerebral palsy and for the last 16 years has been trying to get into the state's home and community-based Medicaid waiver program for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. We thank you so much for joining us this morning here on The Skinny. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. There we are. Um, you know, Scott Darius had mentioned, guys, that, uh, and I remember this, it was 2014, uh, I believe it was, or actually maybe it was 2013, Governor Rick Scott, uh, who was governor at the time, actually did um, talk about Medicaid expansion. A lot of people don't remember this. Scott Darius mentioned this. And they just, they voted on the legislature. So we did have one vote on this. And in the Senate, uh, it was almost unanimous for it. Uh, in fact, the only person who gets it, gets it was uh, Jeff Brandis, actually, from uh, St. Petersburg area. The House, though, no way. And they, and that was it. And I remember this because it was a big political moment because Adam Putnam, who ultimately ended up running uh, for governor, of course, in 2018, lost to Ron DeSantis. He was the agriculture commissioner at the time. And everybody knew he was, you know, thinking about running, but he wasn't going to challenge Scott in 2014, right? He was the Republican incumbent. And Adam was, Putnam was going to run for his own, you know, agriculture commissioner for another four years. But he actually made noises. He was going challenge Rick Scott because it was such so heretical for Rick Scott to even dare mention this. It was kind of, you know, again, uh, GOP orthodoxy at that point, and it still is today in Tallahassee, obviously, that you don't do this for whatever reason. I've talked to lawmakers uh, about this, and one of the arguments that they gave me was simply that Medicaid's a bad program, you know, that doesn't uh, reimburse doctors as much, uh, which is true, um, and some doctors don't want to deal with Medicaid patients. That is correct. But um, I don't know. Is that the reason you don't do it? You know, and uh, but we haven't, and uh, other states, again, the last couple of years, uh, some red states have done this, and we don't. And I think it's relevant to bring up because it's one of those things where it was a big deal like 10 years ago and eight years ago when this first happened, when the Affordable Care Act became the law. Um, and we've seen some states do it, and then a lot of states haven't done it. But like, okay, it's, it, it's still a big deal. Federal government, I still believe, pays like 90% of it. Medicaid is a lot, you know, it's a lot of money. State pays a lot of money, you know, certainly. But um, anyway, that's the situation we have here in Florida. Mitch, what's the political defense for those who uh, oppose expansion? 
Well, like I said, one, doc, one uh, representative told me, she just says, like, you know, doctors don't like it and it's just not really an effective way. And I'm thinking, like, you get health care from your job as a legislator. It's, I think it's pretty good, actually. Uh, so it's easy to say it's not a great program when you're not on it. But that's what I've heard. That's well, what, what, I've heard. They, what do they say when they're faced with constituents who say, hey, that exact thing, you get your health care through here. You're talking about a doctor who doesn't like taking Medicare, but what about the patient? What is their defense when they bring the humanity? Well, well, I, you know, again, we talked to Alice, you know, just now, right? I mean, she's, you, 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 these lawmakers have, they, I think they're, you know, you, you got to have like a, a, not have a heart, right? When you when you see JJ and you want to say something, or like, and I'm sure she's gone to these, especially uh, in her community. She was, I think, in Longwood, which is in the uh, Orange County, Seattle County, I think, area around there. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it, again, there was a, um, it takes money to pass a constitutional amendment, a lot of money, as we all know. Uh, and folks talked about doing that, passing a Medicaid expansion. Uh, and uh, anyway, we've got, uh, let's open the phone lines here, 813-239-9663. I would like to talk about uh, the Republicans in Orlando last night in a moment, but let's go to our calls here. First, we've got, uh, is it Fez is here? Bradenton, hi, you're yeah. on WMNF? Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. I, yes, I, I'm fascinated by this because I, um, I've had uh, three disabilities um, over 20 years and um, legally blind, epileptic, with CBS. And so I've qualified for Medicaid, um, Medicare um, for a long time. And I'm very familiar with these programs, but um Getting them is one thing, but once you're on them, they can um, really be um, restrictive and controlling your life if you really want to stay on them. And you might really want to stay on them if, um, let's just say, you need a medication like an epilepsy medication, which um, one one of these medications can cost $1,000 a month Mm. or more. You know, and right. I think it's absurd because... In what ways uh, are they restricted? Well, because if you, um, as um, someone mentioned earlier, you know, if you make over 7000 a year, i.e. if you work at all, um, or if you live in a household with other people who have an income, and i.e. you have to live alone or with people who don't work... Mm. and also qualify, you cannot get married, um, which I think is absurd, you know, because as soon as you get married, the other person's um, tax status is your status. Oh, that's fascinating. You can't, um, you know, which is like a lifelong um, kind of box that you live in. And um, so you have to live alone. You can't get married. And... um, if you travel outside the country, you can't be gone for more than a month. And if you do travel, the you realize that you can get health care in other places for far less than here, and you can live for far less than here. You know, so you could essentially set up and live better, or have better health care, and, and you know, have better public transit. You know, than we have here right. in a lot of places. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. If you were allowed to in that sense, and 
instead of paying a thousand dollars or five hundred dollars, I mean the difference. Let's let me just say that CVS would charge a thousand dollars for that one medication. Walgreens would charge five hundred a month. Where's the difference? Excuse me. Huh. And um, but you can get the same medication from Canada for a hundred and fifty a month and have it shipped anywhere in the world. Right. You know. And um, <laughs> I think that's just crazy. Indeed, it has to be yeah. like a policy change in America. You know, yeah. in America. So do you, and that's legislative. That's political. Right. You know, that's not something we do from the you know we do from the ground up as a grass movement to make you know legislators change. But um, in the meantime, let's just go to Canada. You know, order from Canada. But the um, because if you don't have and you know don't have that insurance for something, you know, they'll ship to America. They don't care. It's anywhere in the world. And um, don't go to don't go to America for drugs, but the um, it's you know. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. So, have you decided to? I mean, you. It sounds like you, you you sort of live with these sort of restrictions in order to in order to participate in the program. Is that a decision you've made? Well, it's a um, it is because there's. A, you know, there's, I've, I've done a lot of things over, you know, the years, but the, you know, it, when you um, move abroad, you, you know, what I've seen is that in decades past, because I've had this practically my whole life, the, um, you know, they they never enforced that other rule. But I think as technology evolved, you know, we're definitely in a new age of um, databases and computers and whatever. You want to, you know, call this new Internet. Um, All right. Sorry, uh, Fess. Yeah, we we got to move on here. Thank you so much for the phone call. So good. Thank you for your uh, providing that information here. We've got DeAndre from Central Park Village here in Tampa on the air. Hey, thank you for taking my call and uh, on discussing this uh, matter. And uh, my uh, my uh, regards to the family uh, of the young man who's uh, struggling with uh, accessing this. So I was on Medicaid at one point in time. I actually had a stroke and uh, I took a spill. I was getting disability. And then I was moved away from that because I'd worked um, from the Medicaid because I worked. Um, and I was getting like, uh, Medicare. So I don't think you can necessarily have both. And like the last caller just explained, like I, now I'm working and like I do more paying for healthcare costs monthly than I have been permits me to be able to actually see a doctor. And I'm married. We have a little girl. We make, uh, the, uh, the, uh um, just like above, you know, like up, like, Two figures, you know, excuse me, six, uh, no, not six, five figures, like yeah. not a hundred thousand, not yeah. 75, but something like that. Yeah. Um, and my, uh, situation is, it's like all our finances are tied down to contracts and priorities, you know, that we, we need to address, but my health is regularly in flux and I try to I, I, I don't qualify for any of those things my wife and I joke right now that I we should get a, a divorce on paper just so that I could be seen um for like the spill I took when I had the stroke and now I don't get the disability anymore because I've been working or whatever 
that also happened aside from losing Medicaid. Um, um, and I, I mean, there are different health complications that I'm experiencing, and it just doesn't make any sense for me right now, you know, as far as for the policy, because I need the help now. Right. You know, and uh, so I just wanted to kind of like confirm what the yeah. young man was describing. And, and yeah, hopefully there'll be some answer because I'm only 40, bro. I, I just need a little help to get past these ailments so that I can be more productive. And productivity is the big deal for, you know, for, for us right now. And, uh, yeah, so thank you, guys. Yeah, thank yeah. you, DeAndre, for your t- your telling your, your tale there. Again, if you're just tuning in right now, it's 11.45 here on WMNF. I'm the skinny here. I'm Mitch Perry along with Ray Rowe and Ben Montgomery. We've been talking about health care here in Florida, Medicaid situation and the like. Uh, we certainly welcome your phone calls at 813-239-9663. Also, you can uh, email us at dj at wmnf.org. Want to make sure that you still tune in after our program at, at 12 o'clock or 12.06 uh, when Joe Ellen with um, Art in Your Ear will be coming on. She'll have some poets on here, I think, uh, they will be uh, reading to you as well. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Hey, I'm, Mitch, yeah. I was going to ask before we go to the phones, yeah. what uh, what happened uh, last night at the uh, GOP dinner? Would you, yeah. you want to take this yeah, call take this call, then, then we'll talk about, yeah, because I definitely want to tell our listeners. And by the way, we learned that um, there is going to be, you know, the, the next GOP presidential debate is in a couple, week and a half, I think, in Southern California. But there's going to be one in Florida, actually, in late October in Miami. That just was announced last night. Okay, so David in Tampa. David, you're on the air. Hello. Thanks for taking the call. Uh, I just wanted to mention this one point that people don't know about until they experience it. Um, and uh, basically, in Florida, the Medicaid uh, income level is so low that when you get on disability, you are automatically making more money than too much money to qualify for Medicaid. Um, as a result, what happens the way disability, you know the way disability payments are set up, you don't you qualify for Medicare after two years of being on federal disability. So during those two years, uh, many people are forced to just go completely without insurance. Um, mm. I've seen that happen a couple of times to family members. Really? Yeah. And there are states where when you get when you get approved into the Social Security disability, which is a, an extensive process, they group you know they do quite a bit of paperwork and checking checkups and so on. There are states where once you you know when you qualify for that, you automatically qualify for Medicaid. But we don't. Mm. And that's, uh, like I said, it's just an unnecessary institutional cruelty that uh, people seem to allow to... Yeah, right. It does sound like cruelty. It really does. Like, uh, sometimes the bureaucracy is cruel. And uh, that's when heroes step in and fix things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. David, thank you so much for the phone call. So, yeah, we'll go back to our phones here in a minute. But, yeah, we'll just say briefly here because I was in Orlando last night for the Republican Party of Florida's statesman dinner, as they call it. Uh, I guess 800 Republicans were there. Now, the two biggest Republicans of Florida, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, were not there. Uh, DeSantis was fundraising yesterday in New York City. Uh, he, he gave us regrets. Um, Trump, I was reading, there was a story about how he, they wanted to keep it more like Florida and not so much a national thing. In any event, they were not there, but you had all the other 
top Republicans, Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez, as well as the three cabinet members, uh, Chief Financial Officer Jimmy Petronas, Agricultural Commissioner Wilton Simpson, and Attorney General Ashley Moody. And I wrote this, and folks can read my story about this on the Florida Phoenix website um, this morning, uh, is that, I, I, it's almost, I mean, Ron DeSantis, unless somehow, you know, becomes president, he's going to be our governor for another three more years. Uh, deal with it, America or Florida. But in fact, uh, there are people already waiting in the wings, right? Because he is going to be term limited out, as it were, here uh, either way. And uh, so this is kind of like a, a little bit of a tease here, like some of these Republicans. And this is not the only field, right? We've heard Congressman Matt Gates, Congressman Byron Donalds are thinking about running. And of course, there'll be Democrats running. And maybe the Democrats can break their hex of not controlling uh, the governor's mansion, which is not, they haven't been there since 1998. But I will just want to say a couple things here. So you heard some real red me kind of commentary last night. Uh, Jeanette Nunez, uh, she, uh, you know, she she's talked about, of course, these cultural issues, you know, um, the trans issue, which is so big in Florida here. She said, we fought for education, not indoctrination. We don't believe that people can just randomly pick their pronouns. God picks your pronouns. End of story. Uh, then she went on to say, we educate our kids and teach them their ABCs, not their LGBTs. Um, then you had Jimmy Patronus, wow. who actually spoke the longest at 16 minutes. Uh, he was the most outright political. He talked about this virus that invaded our country from a communist nation from outside of our border. Was he talking about COVID? No, no. He was talking about the woke virus, okay? Um, he, uh, of course, we know that Ron DeSantis has, has championed Florida as the you know place where woke goes to die. He really was seized on this. created in a lab as well? He said he wants to, you, you've heard, of course, of defund the police. He wants to defund the IRS, okay? He talked about this $80 million that the uh, the, uh, the IRS is getting uh, through the last year's Inflation Reduction Act. And he's, let me just quote you directly because he said this. And, you know, the Republicans are in control of all chambers in Tallahassee, so they can do what they want. They've got the votes. He said about the IRS, he says they're hiring an army of agents and they're going to come out to the state of Florida. Uh, even though we don't know that at all, he said that those agents would, quote, examine every single transaction that individuals make and that we, quote, have got to stop this politically motivated political process from attacking law of aiding uh, Americans, law of aiding Floridians. That might have been abiding, actually. I need to fix that. Um, he also said uh, he wants to create a trust fund to help people defend themselves if they are targeted by such, quote, politically motivated IRS agents. Uh, he also wants to create penalties for those that target Floridians in such an unethical in a legal manner. Let, can, can we pause for a second and just let PolitiFact address the 87,000 IRS agents? Is that fair? Yes. Uh, the 87,000 figure, this is from PolitiFact, the Pointer Institute, uh, includes hires across the agency, including IT and taxpayer services, not just the enforcement staff, is the, the claim which has been being made by people like Kevin McCarthy and others. Uh, and many of those hires would go toward holding staff numbers steady in the face of historic budget cuts and a wave of projected retirements. Projections of over 700,000 new audits, which is being repeated over and over, of modest income fi uh, filers are based on flawed assumptions and run counter to the strategy the IRS plans follow. So this is PolitiFact, just sort of correct. Yeah, and Mitch, there. I have a question since you were there, um, and I'm afraid of the answer, but what's the, was there anybody there at the dinner last night who doesn't have an appetite for those kind of red meat things? You know, thinking about Nikki Haley and the way she performed right. in the debate and things like that. Did you get any well, sense of that? Well, I will just tell you, of the speakers, and by the way, Ben Shapiro was the keynote speaker. He's a conservative uh, talk show radio host. They saw Riley Gaines, who's a, 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 a NCAA swimmer from University of uh, Kentucky, I believe it is, who's been been, um, 
outspoken about uh, trans athletes competing. Is Riley a fast swimmer or are they slow? I'm just joking. <laughs> um, this is water. Uh, so anyway, so uh, but no, I would say Wilton Simpson, who's the agriculture commissioner, he kind of laid off that stuff. In fact, he, I think he was really like, he wasn't really into talking. He spoke less than five minutes. So, uh, but the other people, Ashley Moody as well. Um, so yeah, um, anyway, so it was, I wanted to get those, you know, f- folks to hear that because the legislature is starting next, you know, in a couple of months officially. And Paul Renner, I've, I didn't write, write about him this morning. I probably maybe will write about on Monday. He's the house speaker. He's very influential. And he said, basically, you know, he was boasting about what happened this past session and said, you ain't seen nothing yet. So I don't know what that means because I thought like they really took, as they said, the meat off the bones there. Okay, let's go back to Ashley here in St. Petersburg. Here, Hi, you're on the skinny here on WMNF. Oh, hi. I hate to regress, but um, I actually wanted to go back to JJ. Yes, please. Yes, that's the main theme today. With CP and his mother, Allison. And, you know, she's a very brave woman. Um, for um, talking out about um, exactly what would happen to her as J.J.'s primary caregiver and um, if something were to happen to her, um, what exactly would J.J.'s um, future be in um, some sort of institutional um, care? And the the other thing is, with regard to Medicaid, um, I know that um, there are doctors that refuse to accept Medicaid patients. Is there not a way that we can supplement the payment for um, doctors caring for people on Medicaid so that they can get the health care that, that they need and that they are deserved. Um, and then lastly, my last thing is, um, with regard to JJ, physical therapy and occupational therapy are the most important things that anyone dealing with a child with CP could um, possibly need. And I'm assuming that is not, um, does not fall under the umbrella of Medicaid. So these are questions, and and not to mention the fact that $7,000 a year, if you make more than that for a family of three, is absolutely ludicrous. I don't know, you may know, if there is a state in the country other than Florida that has these sort of restrictions on Medicaid. Okay, I'm done. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Great questions. Yeah, I don't think we have the answers here at our fingertips, but um, I will listen back to this playback of the show afterwards and uh, I'll try to research that. You know, like, you know, I don't want to like say, uh, oh, we don't know, so we can't do anything. You know, we want to respond immediately here. We only have five minutes left in the program unless somebody who really knows the, you know, the system can give us a call here. Um, but let's Good definitely try talk. to get back with you on that, Ashley. So appreciate those your comments very much. Again, we just have about five minutes left here on the program. Uh, have been talking mostly about the Medicaid system here in Florida. And again, you know, we're one of just 10 states uh, who have, have not done this. Um, also, um, the fact, you know, this, this is a bigger picture of 
um, Republican legislatures not wanting to do a, if you will, a Democratic program. You know, the Affordable Care Act obviously was done under President Obama. It was named Obamacare. But you're seeing this in real time now with uh, our legislature, our government rejecting Joe Biden funds. Um, it's become a big story. We did a big thing on this earlier this week. Uh, the fact that Governor DeSantis back in June vetoed a $5 million federal grant that would have provided up to $346 million in energy rebates. Now, it's one thing if you don't believe in man-made climate change, which I believe is the case of the governor, but these are energy rebates. This is something good for everybody. It saves money. This is talking about businesses, okay? It's not, is it really ideological? Um, but nevertheless, and uh, what we've reported, we talked to the Department of Energy, Florida has up until next August, a year, 11 months from now, to still collect that money. So it's not a dead issue yet. The fact that Governor DeSantis, who is very influential on this, they have not sent a letter back to the Department of Energy saying we're not going to collect it. Now, they may just do that, you know, tomorrow, but they haven't done that yet. All they did was they rejected that grant. So we see um, eight, all the Democrats in Florida sent a letter last week to uh, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm and said, is there an Another way we can work about getting this these funds here. They don't even mention DeSantis in the letter. They don't want to make a political. It's obviously political, but they don't want to you know start pointing fingers. They want the Department of Energy to work with them to work with the state of Florida. Um, you have to work with the Department of Energy. That that funding he rejected would have given the money to the Department of Energy in Florida to implement the program and you know and find the and it would be mostly lower income people that this would be going to. You're talking about me buying uh, Energy Star appliances. You know, things like that, weatherization, uh, things that can save people money. Look, energy bills, uh, Tico's bills are amazingly higher than they were four years ago. Uh, the group Food and Water Watch, I think, said this week, 60% it's raised over the last four or five years. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I know it's raised. And I looked at a Fox 13 story, I believe it was, that uh, talked to a person in Tampa, I believe it was, who was paying 200 something for his insurance, uh, excuse me, for his energy uh, bills up until, uh, you know, back in the spring and now in the summer where you're, we're using a lot more energy, of course, it's $450 now, just this year, actually. So, um, I, I guess it's ideological. He has not commented publicly, the governor has, about why he did not take those monies. Um, so we're always assuming, well, it's like from Joe Biden, so we don't like it. Okay, um, we just we did get another text here. Uh, let's see, disability aid through Social Security is often capped at $2,000 on hand at any time as well, I believe. Able account, I believe able accounts for people who were disabled before age 26 were made to be not as restrictive in terms of how much money people can have. Uh, this person writes, my friend was disabled, and I think th these were made available federally about 10 years ago. Well, I appreciate the comment there, but I will try to get back again to Ashley's comments. Um, so we're almost out of time, Ray, Ben. Yeah, that was a um, great show. Thank you for all the calls today. Really appreciate that. Um, on behalf of our board operator, Skip Sassy, our phone operator, Irene, uh, Mitch Perry, Ben Montgomery right next to me. Please stay tuned. Joe Allen Shilke is in Studio One. The are lights are down. And I don't know what the mood is like in there, but your hostess with the mostest is waving her arms, oh, and she's excited to tell you more about uh, lights and everything. <laughs> what's going on. You've been listening to WMNF Tampa, and if you're going to Tiger Bay to see Richard Corcoran. See God you bless you. <laughs>